Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are joined by Rabbi Michael Hatton. Rabbi Hatton is a master teacher of Tanakh at the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies in Jerusalem and serves as a director of the Beit Midrash for the Pardes Center for Jewish Educators. He studied for rabbinic ordination at Yeshivat Har Etzion and holds a professional degree in architecture from the University of Toronto. Michael is the author of Passages, Text and Transformation in the Parsha, and a number of series on the Israel Koshitsky Virtual Beit Midrash. He has served as scholar-in-residence in many communities in North America and Europe and lives in Alon Shavut with his wife Rivka and their five children. Without further ado, Rabbi Hatton. Thank you for joining the Judaism Demystified podcast. So Rabbi Haddon, it's a pleasure to have you on. We're huge fans and uh, we'd like to first hear a little bit about you and how you got involved with this amazing series on, on Yoshua. Thank you. I studied at Yeshivat Haaretzion in my youth. When I made Aliyah with my wife, it's actually been exactly 25 years. I went back to the Yeshiva. I learned in Kolel for Smicha. And the yeshiva has a very special approach in general to Talmud Torah. It is incisive, it is insightful, it is rational, it's careful, and it includes a broad range of texts. It's obviously focused on Gemara, but there's also a lot of attention given to Tanakh and given to Halakha. And I really think that it was in the yeshiva and my exposure to certain Rebbeim that very much began to shape my own approach to Tanakh. And um, since leaving the yeshiva and being involved in the world of Jewish education, I have taken that with me and, and hopefully developed it in a good direction. Out of curiosity, um, you know, I have one son, he's two years old, and I dream for him to go to Haaretzio. No, I'm serious. I dream for him to go. So I'm kind of just doing my own little research here, but I'm just wondering, the, the Tanakh, it's so, um, everyone knows about Haaretzion and its approach to Tanakh and, you know, the, the the unique style that it employs. I wonder when it comes to Gemara, do you, do, is there um, anything different about the way Haaretzion learns Gemara from how you would maybe consider different types of the more mainstream style? I'm just wondering. Listen, the, the yeshiva has a, a, a special derech, a special way of learning in Gemara as well. Uh, I think there is overlap, actually, in terms of, you know, how Tanakh is approached and how Gemara is approached. Okay, cool. Um, so the short answer is yes, definitely has an approach. Okay. So I, I'll look at, so there's, okay, cool. Very mm -hmm. cool. Beseda. So even though, you know, my, my years in yeshiva really, you know, formally ended a long time ago, I feel like I, I've taken what I've, what I've learned there and, and, and taken it forward to the other places that I've gone to. Fantastic. Amazing. So okay. each book in Tanakh carries an overarching theme or message. If you were to select a main theme for the book of Yoshua, what would it be? Additionally, could you provide examples from the text that demonstrates this theme? Mm -hmm. Okay, that's a that's a big question. So I'm going to try and address it by mentioning a couple of points. I think Sefer Yehoshua fundamentally is about a theme of succession, which is to say, obviously, Moshe is no more, and Yehoshua now has to step 
into that leadership role. And whenever we have a succession, there are going to be challenges. Some of those challenges will be foreseen. Many of them will be unforeseen. That's true of Yehoshua stepping into the role of Moshe. It's true of the people of Israel entering the land. It's true of Kalev. We meet him in the book. He makes a cameo appearance. And we'll meet his daughter, Achsa, who in some way will be succeeding him, along with her new husband, Otniel ben Knaz, who will ultimately succeed Yehoshua. So I think it's fair to say that it's a theme. And as I said, whenever we have succession, that means you're confronting challenges, you're overcoming failures, setbacks. Uh, sometimes there are ghosts from the past that you have to face down. And maybe most importantly, and this is a related theme, but very much tied in with the succession, is the theme of taking initiative. Mm. And say for Yehoshua, Yehoshua as, as a leader is a man who takes initiative. And he's got to bring the people into the land, and they have to take initiative as well. When I say taking initiative, what I mean is my faith is in God. I trust in Hashem's assurance, but I actually have to do the planning, and I have to do the hard work in order to create the success. So I'm, I'm almost tempted to say succession. Yeah, success, because they're sort of intertwined in this particular book. Um, if I were to give an example, is that like appropriate? Okay, so if I were to give an example of this theme in the book, if we follow the course of the warfare, the battles, it's absolutely clear to me that the people, Yehoshua, are taking more initiative as those battles progress. And Hashem is, as it were, stepping into the background in order to allow that to happen. So for instance, the first battle against Yericho, against Jericho, in Perak Vav, chapter 6, basically, Hashem is responsible for the victory. All you have to do is follow the Aron, follow the Ark, circle the city, sound the Shofarot, and the walls will come tumbling down. There's no initiative that the people are really taking in terms of warfare, except following Hashem's lead. The next series of battles, which is against the southern kings, they're going to have to take more initiative. And they do. And when God intervenes in the story, it will only be when those kings are in retreat. But the battle itself is actually fought by B'nai Israel. And when they, when they battle the northern kings in Perik Yudalif in chapter 11, Hashem, as it were, will retreat completely into the background. So the victory will be theirs, and the battle will be won by B'nai Israel. So on the one hand, it's, it's sort of a double-edged sword because as soon as we have triumph and success, which is a function of our own efforts, the Torah tells us there's always a danger. I'm responsible for my success. No, the Torah says, don't forget. God gives us the strength in order to succeed, but embedded in there is some sort of an idea that we have to take the initiative. So it's interesting. So it didn't happen like in one swoop, but in in a sense, like Yeshua and Hashem are sort of kind of slowly, slowly allowing that reality to unfold battle per battle per battle, more and more and more initiative, kind of um, gently allowing that that reality to to come in. 
Like Listen, you are, are lovers, yes. you know, you are lovers of Rambam. So I would say it's following it's following a Rambam model, which is to say that Hashem moves us in a particular direction incrementally, because to try and transform in a single swoop often will be unsuccessful and sometimes destructive. So B'nai Israel, you know, in his version of it, have to be in the Midbar for 40 years, because that's going to be their opportunity to grow into the role of actually entering the land, embracing their destiny, taking the initiative, and being successful. Amazing. Okay. So um, we want to talk about the beginning parts of Yeshua regarding the sending of the spies. So Yeshua's decision to send the spies, to send spies to the land before their conquest might surprise some, given the past failure of the spies in the book of Bamidbar. Could you explain Yeshua's rationale behind sending the spies? What comparisons and contrasts can we draw between the earlier account of Moshe's Moshe spies and the mission led by Yeshua? And how did these differences help the second mission avoid the pitfalls faced by the spies in the book of Numbers? Was Rechav's, and also, was Rechav's involvement part of the plan from the outset? Okay, that's a great series of questions. I'll just begin by pointing out that Yehoshua was part of the original mission. Yes. He was one of those 12 spies. So that is an important point in terms of reflecting upon how he chooses to do things differently. Mm -hmm. Remember that Moshe spies, there were 12 of them. The Torah described them as Rashay Vene Israel Hema. They were leaders of the people. There was a public send-off. When they returned, they returned to Moshe, Aharon, and Kol Adat Bene Israel, all of the people of Israel, with their report. Now that's a dangerous move because if they return with a negative report, Moshe will not be able to do damage control because it's already out there. And all the people of Israel know about it, and that's precisely what happens. The people lose their resolve, they lose their faith, and they say, we cannot possibly enter the land and be successful. I'll point out, Yehoshua spies, there were only two of them, it's a small group, will never find out their names, they remain anonymous, their mission is a limited mission, to spy out Haaretz ve'et Yericho, but they really only go to Yericho. And I would argue, really what they're trying to ascertain is, what is the mood of the people on the eve of the Israelite entry into the land? And that would explain, by the way, this is a question, okay? Did they go to Rahav intentionally? Was that going to be their base of operations? Or was it a coincidence? That's where they ended up. And the story unfolded from there. So I'd like to argue that Yehoshua actually planned to send them there very deliberately. Number one, because it affords them anonymity. You go to the house of a harlot, people are not going to be asking too many questions. Nobody's going to be revealing their identity. And there's probably also a lot of intelligence that, that, that they can actually acquire in that place. Because people talk. There's a whole bunch of different individuals that probably pass through there. And if they are listening carefully, they can find out an awful lot, which is precisely what happens. Because when Rahav reports on the mood of the people, she makes it very clear. We have lost our spirit. We've lost our resolve. So that's what they needed to hear. And here's sort of like the most striking contrast of all, I would say. 
Moshe's spies spy out the land for 40 days. They go from north to south. They obviously encounter Canaanites. And in spite of that, we don't explicitly hear of them ever being threatened. Now, in the Midrash, it does come out. Rashi mentions a Midrash where the spies are sort of regarded as being, you know, ants in the vineyards in the eyes of the Canaanites. But in terms of the Pshat, at least, we don't hear about any sort of threatening, um, any, any sort of threatening episodes during the course of their mission. And in spite of that, they come back with this absolute sense that we cannot possibly succeed in entering the land, right? Take the spies of Yehoshua, who basically are like one step away from being captured and probably executed. And yet when they return to Yehoshua, they don't even mention that. What do they say? God has given us the land and they've all melted away. So how do we interpret that? I would say what that really points to is the transformation that the people of Israel have undergone during the course of the 40 years in the Midbar. They now have the confidence, the self-confidence, the trust in Hashem that they can succeed. And even when they are confronted with threats or challenges, they will not be derailed. And they'll say, we can do this. Most of spies, between you and me, are basically freed slaves. They don't have that same kind of emotional wherewithal, that same kind of psychological strength. And as soon as anything emerges, which is a threat, then they immediately lose resolve. There's no way we can possibly possibly succeed. So I would say Yoshua is very careful to not repeat the mistakes of the past. When those two spies return, they report exclusively to him and to no one else. And then he can decide how to proceed based on the report that they have. And um, he probably, based on what you were saying, uh, Yoshua also has a, a pulse of the people and he understands that these were not the freed slaves that Moshe had, that, 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 you know, with, that was what Moshe had to deal with was freed slaves and people that had probably psychologically a lot of, a lot of uh, um, trauma, trauma, right? Uh, Yeshua probably had a pulse of the people that he was leading in and felt that it would, it would you know, they, they had the inner strength to be able to handle it. And they did. And they did. And by the way, you know, uh, Yehoshua and Kalev were part of that original mission. So it's not always the case, even if people experience trauma, that they can't overcome it. But it typically takes a special kind of person with special resilience. And most of us perhaps are not are not sort of like constructed with that kind of ability. So obviously, and this is, again, coming back to the Rambam, this is how the Rambam ultimately understands the 40 years in the Midbar. It's not a punishment. For it's an opportunity for the people of Israel to grow into their role and to acquire the confidence to actually enter the land when the time comes. The actions of the spies just showed that they were just not ready. Simple as that. Correct. Amazing. And what I find so interesting about what you pointed out is that the resolve of the people on either side is so critical to their success. 
that you know our own like it's not even just our resolve it's it's the enemy's resolve that matter that that kind of uh is important so when they hear that it's like okay we got this you know i find that to be very interesting uh, it's, yeah it's an excellent point uh because obviously it's sort of a two-way street here um and you know there, there's a there's a beautiful Ibn Ezra I'll just point it out because I think it I think it's part of this idea Ibn Ezra says you know at Yamsuf the people of Israel were faced down by by Pharaoh's chariots there were 600 chariots okay and there's a there's a serious fighting force but Bnei Israel number 600,000 men of military age Ibn Ezra says in spite of that we didn't hear a single voice saying, let's fight the Egyptians. B'nai Israel said, we don't stand a chance. Why did you take us out of Mitzrayim in order to die? Right? Ibn Ezra says that, that's, that highlights the fact that, th that they have what he calls nefesh shifala. We call it in English a slave mentality. That's what B'nai Israel are when they leave Mitzrayim. And I'm not blaming them. Obviously, that's appropriate for where they are in their development. So they're not able to even imagine fighting the Egyptians. What a transformation now that the Israel are prepared to enter the land, right? And yes, that's being reflected in how their enemies are also relating and reacting to them. Beautiful. So I want to switch gears. I actually want to go back to Rahab. So Rahab, um, obviously the, the Gemara famously says she's one of the most beautiful women who ever lived, and she was a you know, she married uh, Yoshua. Everyone's familiar with those, um, you know, tales. But the story of Rahab in the book of Yoshua is also, you know, just the pshat is very well known. And um, your analysis of Yoshua, you delve deeply into various aspects of the story. Was Rahab truly a harlot? And why does the text not pass judgment on her profession if it is indeed accurate? What might Rahab have been thinking throughout this entire ordeal? And did she go, did she undergo some form of transformation during this experience? So it, it's very interesting that, you know, throughout Tanakh, uh, to be a zona or znut is never looked upon favorably. Uh, and often when B'nai Israel stray from Hashem, that's the imagery that's employed. So this is a striking anomaly where we have this woman who is who was identified from the get-go as a zona and the pshat is a prostitute that's the pshat i know the midrash will say she's an innkeeper and it'll actually be based on a clever re-reading of the root of the word you have zana and you have zon right mm -hmm. and they kind of look similar so she's a zona maybe that's related to mazon which is innkeeping or providing food but the pshat is, and Rashi himself acknowledges this, that that she is in fact a prostitute. And often so, keepers were also, you know, play the dual role of being, you know, offering the mezonot, but also being the the zona. Good. So, so there might be a connection on that level as well. Yeah. Um, so I I think it actually, you know, if if and when we read Rahab has has zona as Rahab the prostitute, that's when the story actually is meaningful. Because what it's offering us is one of the most important ideas in Sefer Yehoshua, which is that transformation is possible, right? We've seen this idea of succession, right? Succession comes along ideally with some sort of a transformation. 
whatever that whatever it is that I am growing into indicates that I'm leaving something behind and I'm great I'm embracing something else in its place. And I think Rahab absolutely illustrates that point. Um, maybe it's not the absolute shot, but it's certainly appropriate to read between the lines that that's in fact what's taking place. Why does she choose to betray her people, betray her king, and embrace the enemy? So you might say, well, she's making a calculation. She figures B'nai Israel are going to win, so she'll be on the winning side. And I think that's definitely part of it. But the way she expresses it indicates that there's something else which is taking place. And I'll just point out that when she speaks of God, it's in contrast to the gods of Yericho. She speaks of God as being the God of Hashamayim. The quote is, Ki Hashem Elokechem, Hu Elokim Bashamayim Mima'al, Va'al Ha'aretz Mitachat. Your God is the God in heavens above and on the earth below, I would argue, Two more words, she's quoting Moshe Rabbeinu, which is Ein Od, there is no more. That's how we say it in Aleinu, that verse from Sefer Devarim. But she is basically saying something about how the God of Israel is different than the gods that she's familiar with. I would argue in the text reports that Rahab dwells in the Choma, in the wall of the city, that's also a statement about her marginalization. Because whoever dwells on the outskirts of a city, especially close, close to the wall, which means when the enemy attacks, they're going to be in the first line of defense. Typically, those are the people that are the weak and the vulnerable and the marginalized. And that's what she is, because every prostitute is that. Even today, in our modern societies, who tends to be involved in that profession? Very few people will do it as a function of choice. They are somehow abused, or they're addicted, or they are manipulated, and they get into that place, and there's no way out. And Rahab knows very well. She can turn in those spies and be a hero for a day. When that day is over, her life is not going to change. The only way her life can change is if, in fact, there's something other than the gods of Yericho. Because the gods of Yericho look on her abasement and they don't have a problem with it. Typically in, and, and we're sort of not, we're not sensitive to this. In idolatry, especially in the ancient Near East, justice and kindness and compassion are not values. There might be some gods out there that care, but by and large, they're not enough to win the day. In the entire corpus of the ancient Near Eastern literature, there is nothing which remotely resembles what we call Aserat Hadibrot. Thou shalt not murder. How is that possible? Because in a polytheistic system, there's no such thing. There's a God of good, there's a God of bad, there's a God of night, there's a God of day, there's a God of evil, there's a God of good, there's a God of the sea, there's a God of the sky, whatever. Do what you want. There are gods out there that are going to be on your side. So we never hear the pantheon, the Canaanite pantheon saying, guess what, people? Oppress oppression is wrong. Marginalizing the vulnerable is wrong. Forcing a woman into this profession is wrong. You'll never hear that. You can't. Now Rahab meets these curious visitors who represent a different God. 
What sort of a God is it? It's a God who cares about the orphan, the widow, the vulnerable, the oppressed. And she says to herself, wow, maybe that means that somebody cares about me. So I would argue what she actually experiences in the course of her conversation with these Israelite spies is for the first time in her life, the possibility that her life could be something else. And that's also part of her embrace. It's not just the calculation that the Israelites will win and the people of Yericho will lose. It's that if I join this people and their God, then I can leave my life behind and become something else. By the way, this is how Chazal read her, interpreted her. It might be Midrashic, but it's also the Pshat. In the Mechilta, Chazal tell us there's sort of this august group of converts in our tradition. Yitro is one of them. Naaman is one of them. But Chazal say, Rahab surpasses all of them. Rahab hazona hoda otan biyoter. She acknowledged God to a greater degree than any of the other converts. And the, the verse that I quoted earlier, Hashem elokechem hu elokim bashamay mima'al va'al ha'aretz mitachat. So I think in many ways, Rahab becomes a paradigm for us. We can also transform. Everyone can transform. And everyone has challenges. Everyone has difficulties. Everyone has things that they want to change. And it's never easy. It's never easy. But it's possible. I think also what it teaches us is that, you know, you shouldn't judge a book by its cover. Because in the ancient world, if you're a, you know, a single mother or whatever it is, or just a woman who's divorced or widowed, chances are you're going to have to end up in harlotry. So she she's in this world, but at the same time, this this story is showcasing her um, integrity that she actually has, um, you know, she actually has good, yeah, she has worth, she has good qualities. And Hashem listens to the voice of people who are, you know, the downtrodden in society. And that is, I think, a very, you mentioned in ancient Near East, that is a stark difference from what you see in, in the other, you know, stories where usually the greatest heroes are like demigods. But here, the hero of the story, the Midrash mentioned that she marries Yoshua, I think, to point out the fact that look how great of an achievement a person can make if they have this kind of integrity. And not only does she have integrity, but she put her trust in in these two random people um, with the crimson string. And, you know, how does she know that they're not going to just, OK, we got what we wanted and we're going to kill everybody anyway. Um, and again, those two spies have to get that information to to Yoshua and make sure that all these soldiers are going to, you know, be, you know, uh, fall in line and protect her. That that is an extra layer of integrity that she has. Beautiful. Uh, I'll go, you know, I'm going to build on what you said. She also saves her family. Yes. It's not just about herself. She saves her siblings. She saves her parents. Right. So clearly she has some kind of nobility associated with her. I, I honestly think you mentioned the Crimson Cord. It's a powerful image. Basically what you have, you have some sort of a portal and you have this Crimson Cord, which is hanging in it. And that's going to be the source of her survival. That sounds to me like an Exodus story, right? You place the blood on yeah. the lintel and on the doorposts, right? 
and Hashem will sweep through and will preserve you. And when you cross that threshold, you will be entering a new chapter in your life. So it's almost like it's a personal Yitziat Mitzrayim, so to speak, for a Chavazona, or Yitziat Yibichom, maybe would be a better way to characterize it. Yeah, and the red kind of represents their, you know, this security, the safety net that they have um, in both in both stories. And I always wondered, like, you know, the red string ladies and the <laughs> near the Kotel, like if that's where the origin of that comes from, even though obviously we, we don't believe that it's uh, has any religious significance. But it's interesting that that also is like a protective thing. And it probably builds off of that crimson uh, cord. Just thought about it as an anecdote. Uh, this was very. Uh, this was a very enlightening chapter and uh, amazing. This whole Rachav story is just unbelievable. Yeah, it was. It was your chapters on Rachav in the book that when I got it, when I started reading that, I was like, I was like, whoa, wait, 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 like this is like you, you, you like you got my attention. It was. It was. Uh, it was really well done. Thank you for that one. Um, in Yehoshua, five thirteen to six one, um, it recounts the appearance of the angel of the Lord to Yehoshua. What similarities does this encounter share with previous previous occurrences in the Torah? What overarching lesson or message could this angel have been conveying to Yeshua and by extension to the people of Israel? So I, th I think in context, um, you know, the first five chapters of Yehoshua are about the succession theme. They're about confronting some of the traumas of the past and overcoming them. They're almost like preparation. But the story of the kibush of the conquest actually will begin with chapter six. The appearance of this malach is the bridge between the two. The image is very similar to the angel that appears to Moshe at the sneh, at the burning bush in Sefer Shemot. And in both situations, the Malach or Hashem speaking through the Malach says, Shal na remove your footwear because you're standing on holy ground. So that's a way of keying us in to the connection between the stories. You might say both of these moments are moments where the leader will now take on the mission that they had been assigned. For Moshe Tzitziyat Mitzrayim, for Yehoshua, it's bringing the people into the land. But that's also a study in contrasts, because Moshe was absolutely reluctant to do so. He went through a whole series of arguments why he's not the right person for the job. In the end, Hashem sent him anyways. We don't hear any of that reluctance with Yehoshua. Yehoshua embraces the mission, and he's going to take it on. So that's like one fundamental difference. I think additionally, when Moshe goes to uh, the Midbar, to the wilderness, and encounters this Malach Hashem at the Sneh, he's a shepherd. And that means that his tool of trade is the Mateh, the staff. That's what he's going to use, by the way, to do all of the otot, all of the signs and the wonders when the people are in Egypt and he is doing the miracles and the plagues in order to free them. The Mateh will always be the, the, the symbol of that divine intervention. When Yehoshua meets the Malach, the Malach is holding a sword. When Yehoshua fights battles later on in the story, he will be holding a kidon, which is a spear. That's also a fundamental difference. Moshe holds a mateh, 
Yehoshua holds a weapon because that speaks to their different missions. Moshe's mission is to take the people out of Mitzrayim, to lead them out like a shepherd leading the flock. Yehoshua's mission is to bring them into the land, which means that they're going to have to fight. By the way, Sar Tzva Hashem was originally announced in the Torah itself. In Sefer Shemot, Hasham told Moshe, I'm sending a malach before you who will help you enter the land. So many of the commentaries say that's precisely who appears at this moment at the end of Perakei, the beginning of chapter 6, the eve of the conquest of Yericho, because we are now at that point in the story. It's been a 40-year delay but we're now at that point of actually engaging the Kna'anim in battle. And therefore, the assurance that we need is that, in fact, victory will belong to Bnei Israel if they can only find the inner strength and the reliance on Hashem. One last difference, I would say. The idea of, of removing one's shoes. When Moshe, or sandals, when Moshe is told, presumably it's because he is encountering Hashem's presence. It's Gilui Shechina, even though it's in the wilderness. Yehoshua is now about to enter Eretz Yisrael, engage in conquering Eretz Yisrael. That's a different kind of Kiddusha. That's a different kind of holiness. So the removal of, the, of, the, of his footwear here is both an acknowledgement of the fact that this being is somehow an emissary of God, as well as saying something, I think, about the holiness of the land that they are about to be conquering and settling. You know, what's also interesting about the this vision of Yeshua seeing a man in armor is that there seems to be like a common thread whenever anybody's having a vision of an angel, that they're, oh, they're seeing a... Kind of getting it's a reflection of their subconscious mind, um, and everything they've experienced is through their own framework. So, um, for example, you have Abraham with you know the the angels who come to visit the sick. They're 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 angels of Chesed, and he's a man of Chesed. And then you have uh, even Yeshayahu. You have a man on a throne, uh, which is really reflecting his you know job working in the palace. They're 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 seeing things from their own perspective. Because that's how they experience it. Like you mentioned, the same thing. This the story of of. Uh, Which is why every navi is unique. Every navi is unique, and also, um, like it brings to mind the um, the encounter between Yaakov and the angel, who's described as the angel of Esav, because that's what he was. He was about to face off with his brother, but he's been living in his brother's shadow his whole life, and this story, in a way, like you said shows the contrast between Moshe and and Yoshua. Uh, one is a shepherd and one is okay this is the new age. Now we need to fight. Now we need to be warriors. Warrior. So um I think that's an you know a very interesting uh um idea that you see with prophecy. So um I want to get into the next uh question which is in Yoshua 627 to 726 it narrates Israel's initial setback during Yoshua's leadership. An incident involving Achan's transgression. And in your insightful analysis of the narrative, you explore the failure of the eye ambush, Yoshua's profound despondency, God's revelation of a wrongdoer in the in their midst as a the cause, and Achan's tragic fate. 
Could you highlight some of the subtleties within this narrative and elucidate the ultimate lesson we should derive from this tragic chapter in an otherwise positive book up to this point? Wow. So let's not forget that the 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 command ringing in the ears of B'nai Israel after the triumph over Jericho is do not take from the spoils. Mm. That's like absolutely critical. Do not take from the spoils because the way to interpret that is it's Hashem's victory. B'nai Israel didn't fight. It was the Aaron that was responsible for the conquest of the city. So we acknowledge that by not taking from the spoils that otherwise would have been taken by the armies that defeated the enemy, but instead they're turned over to God. That's the backdrop. They go on to the eye, which is now moving from the Jordan Valley into the hill country. And by the way, that's a strategic move on Yehoshua's part. He's intending to divide the hill country in half, to split the north from the south, so he can take on these Canaanite kings, not as a unified front, but as somewhat broken up into more manageable parts. They get to the eye, and as you pointed out, there is a setback. They are defeated in the initial battle. And Yehoshua's reaction is, is overwhelming. He can't believe what's going on. We should have remained on the other side of the Arden. So obviously that's a way of saying Yehoshua was absolutely not expecting this to happen. As it turns out, we will discover that Ahan is responsible. How so? He took from the spoils of Yericho. The way the text phrases this, though, is very, very significant. When God tells Yehoshua that Bnei Israel are responsible, he doesn't say Ahan took from the spoils. He says, Chatai Israel, the people of Israel took from the spoils. They took from the cherem, from that which was banned. Vigam ganavu, vigam kichashu, vigam samu bichlehem. They took, they denied, they placed it with their possessions, and they will not be victorious until this forbidden matter, this cherem, is removed from their midst. And then we go through this whole lengthy process of singling out who the perpetrator is. First, we will designate the tribe by lot, and then we'll designate the bateavot and the mishpacha, and finally, after like a whole series of winnowing effects, we will arrive at the perpetrator who is Ahan. And then he's punished. What's that all about? Why do we have to go through this elaborate selection of Ahan in which we start from the large group and we basically narrow it down until we get to him? So the book, I think, is presenting us with a really important idea, which Chachamim expressed in a different context using different words. They said, Kol Yisrael arevim zebazeh. All of B'nai Yisrael are co-responsible for each other. We have some sort of a collective destiny, which means when Achan makes a decision, even though he thinks he's only acting for Achan, that decision is going to impact on all of the people around him. It's going to impact on his family and on his tribe and on the people of Israel at large. And especially that is true when you're dealing with some sort of a military context, and literally your life as a warrior depends on the warriors around you. You can't make a personal decision. 
Because if you make a personal decision, you're jeopardizing everybody else. So we're beginning these wars of conquering the land. Part of that is you need absolute discipline in the ranks. So Akan takes from the spoils. It's not just him, but it's the people. They're the ones that actually suffer the, the consequence of that decision. And ultimately, that's the process by which we will separate him out. Because we want to show, Hashem wants to show, that the Sefer wants to show that all of Bnei Israel are intertwined. And there's no such thing as one person making a decision in a context like that and it not having an impact on everyone else. I think even another way of looking at it would be that it's giving an opportunity for Teshuvah. Because... It, it's not like he was outed immediately. And fact is, when he came forward, it was too late. It was like, okay, you've been busted already. So what does it mean? It doesn't mean anything. Your your confession or you know it doesn't. It's meaningless. So I think what it what it's also giving him the opportunity uh, to step forward. You know, you're going through every okay. Who which one of you people did it? And which one of you people? It's it's a process that they're going through that he had the chance to kind of. You know, change would his that, destiny. Would, would, that would have it have made a difference? Changed? Would have would that have made a difference? Do you think? We'll never know. We'll never know. <laughs> I, I I like to think that it would have, <laughs> in the sense that it's it's always best to to come forward rather than to be like you said outed, right? Um, it's interesting. There, there's a machloket. There's a disagreement among the commentaries. What was the fate of his children? Were they also destroyed as he was, or were they only present in order to uh, witness it? Mm. And part of that perhaps has to do with what, what exactly was their role in terms of being accomplices. Because it's true that Achan took from the spoils, but you can't just sort of like do that without people around knowing about it, without family knowing about it. He hid it in his tent after all, right? So clearly there are other people that perhaps are aware on some level of what's going on and what's their responsibility. Really what I'm saying is somebody makes a decision, there's like these concentric circles that are going to be impacted. And the closer you are to that decision maker making the poor decision, you might argue, the greater responsibility is also borne by, by the people that, that are there, that are around. And I love the point you made with how um, they're now starting military conquests and and when you are starting military conquests a person has to understand that he's no longer an individual you're only a group that that's that you know till today that's how it works no man gets left behind and you know and uh, this is it's almost like besides from a moral standpoint it's also educational Right, because they they have to understand what it means to to be a unit and and going in and conquering and fighting and wars. It's not a joke, uh, and they have to they have to sort of grow up fast. You know I, what I mean? Um, and that that little detail you added there with that just it, I, when you said that, I was like, wow, you know, that's a yeah, we it's see, an important subtle point over there. We see that even with besides modern, the moral, which is also important. We see yeah. that even with modern day Israel, where you know, somebody, a, a soldier or some a Jew anywhere in the world is in trouble. They'll do whatever it takes to to go after them. You know, yeah. Tepe, you know, it's it's an unbelievable thing that I think a lot most nations wouldn't, you know, do whatever it takes um, to to remedy the situation. 
Good. And, and, and of course, that means that there's a flip side, right? Now, as, as much as we care, that, that also means that we're, we're going to suffer the consequences of, of, you know, another Jew's poor decisions. Yes. Yep. Again, especially in a military context. Yeah. And I think what you're saying is very, it's a very practical take because like you mentioned um, the, did the sons, you know, pay the consequences, but you know, the Torah famously says that no son will die for the sins of the father. And no, but what about when they're accomplices? Right. So um, in it's, it's very illuminating to, you know, point out that they may have been accomplices because we see also with Korach and his sons, that it's not the same situation. So um, I thought that was a very important point that you made. Listen, I think, you know, the, the Korach contrast is fantastic because Uvne Korach Lometu. Yeah, yeah exactly. So obviously they, they made a different decision. And therefore their father's rebellion did not impact on them. So it could work either way. It's a great point. Okay. Um, lastly, and I wish we can... I wish we had time to do the whole book, but that's not going to happen. But uh, lastly, what are your reflections on the seemingly indiscriminate slaughter of the Canaanite inhabitants? The moral complexity of these events challenges, challenges us in today's westernized world. The common explanation attributes these actions to the ancient, ancient rules of warfare characterized by harshness and brutality. This was how things were done back then, right? However, is this approach the accurate accurate way to address the moral dilemma? Great question. I think, you know, especially as moderns, uh, my experience has been in, in teaching Sefer Yehoshua that this is probably one of the most challenging questions. Um, so I want to point out a couple of things, and um, I'm not sure we can fully resolve it or that it's resolvable, but I want to point out a couple of things. Number one, I think it's important to note that the war against the Canaanites is not a is not an ethnic war, it's an ideological war, which is to say the following: um, the fate of Yericho is that Yericho is slaughtered, and the city is banned. Right, it becomes cherem. Nothing can be enjoyed from the spoils, and it must remain destroyed until the end of time. That's what's described in Sefer Yehoshua. I'll just point out that's exactly what's described as the fate of what's called the Ir Hanidachat, the Israelite city that succumbs to idolatry, suffers the same fate. Exactly. Everyone is put to death. The city is burned. No one is allowed to partake from the spoil. So what does that really say? The issue is not whether you're Israelite or Canaanite. The issue is, where you, is whether you're an idolater or not. That's the issue. So I would say the war against the Kana'anim was a war against idolatry, not a war against a particular ethnic group, which is why, by the way, Chazal and the Rishonim, especially the Rambam and the Ramban, both understood that a Canaanite who accepts Sheva Mitzvot B'nei Noach, the seven Noachide laws, this entire, uh, this entire war of destruction does not apply to them. Lo does not apply to Kna'anim who accepted Sheva Mitzvot B'nei Noach, the seven Noachide laws. Now again, is that the pshat? Harder to say. There are indications in the story, clearly, that not all the Canaanites were put to death. I'll just point out, there are 31 kings that are mentioned. Most of these kings are really city-states. That's the list in chapter 12 of Sefer Yehoshua. 
that leaves an awful lot of towns and villages and cities which are not destroyed. And we know that because in Sefer Shoftim, the Kna'anim will be very much around and their culture will be informing the people of Israel. So on the one hand, I would argue the goal was for the people of Israel to be able to carve out some small place where they could actually achieve their mission as monotheists. And at the same time, most of the Canaanite population was not destroyed. Um, the battles in Sefer Yehoshua are primarily battles against military coalitions. That's who's described as fighting against them. The king of Hebron and the king of Yerushalayim and the king of Lachish in the south and a few more and the king of Hatzor and the king of various other places in the north. And that's who they're fighting, which is another way of saying Yehoshua's wars are not against the civilian population per se, but against the military alliances. Mm. Now, it is true that some of those cities are destroyed when their armies are destroyed. That's true. But I'm not sure that that was necessarily the point. The point was to defeat the Canaanite armies first, and then whatever else is necessary in order to be victorious. One other thing that I want to point out, which is, I think, uh, very important. First of all, yes, it's difficult to make a one-to-one -one comparison from what's reported in Sefer Yehoshua to our own experience today. But I'll just point out, as much as we like to think that modern warfare is more humane, I'm not sure that that's the case. Certainly in the 20th century, tens of millions of civilians lost their lives. America dropped two atomic bombs on Japan, which incinerated 150,000 civilians. Now you might argue, yes, but that prevented a larger casualty list because if they would have had to invade the Japanese mainland, then there would have been more casualties, whatever. It's a calculation that's made. But there's no such thing as a war in which civilians are spared. Yeah. They shouldn't be the deliberate target. And I don't think they are in Sefer Yehoshua. But it's unrealistic to expect that somehow you're going to defeat the enemy army and the civilians are going to be unharmed. What does the Torah say? The Torah says, when you conquer a city, first you you, you offer it terms of peace. There's a machloket. Does this apply the, to the Kananim or not? Again, the Ramban will say that it does. So the way the Ramban reads the story, just like what happened with the Gibonim, right? there's an opportunity for them to be spared. When we finally get to the list of the Canaanite kings that are defeated, it's a list of 31 kings, chapter 12 of Sefer Yehoshua. The, the Chachamim call that Shira. It is a song. But there's nothing in there which is triumphalist. There's nothing in there which is celebratory. As much as Sefer Yehoshua describes the defeat of the Kna'anim, it never celebrates it. It's never some grotesque kind of gloating over the destruction of the enemy. So I would say that's an incredibly important point. If you know anything about ancient literature, ancient mythology, it's full of celebrating the defeat yes. of the enemy, yeah. often in very grotesque terms. Like... Uh you know, brings to mind Ramses II's war against the, the Battle of Kadesh, right? So flaunting and all that stuff. Um, Absolutely. I, I, think, I think that uh, 
know, to add to your point, the Torah also speaks very hyperbolically, um, oftentimes, like the way we would speak today when a team in sports beats another team, they say, wipe, they wipe the floor with them, you know, or they, they dest- utterly destroyed them. So a lot of times the Torah will use that language because we don't even know. It might be using, um, you know, a cultural, uh, you know, kind of like what, what it did with, for example, Biyad uh, Chazakah was running to, yeah, these, the, a language that was used in that time. So it would kind of adopt that. And the, Tor- the Torah kind of exaggerates in, in certain situations. So um, I think that's an important point to, to make when it comes to this, you know, uh, utter destruction of of uh, Yericho. I don't think that it's necessarily literal, like you said. So um, I thought that was a, um, something that I wanted to point out. Excellent point. Um, one thing that that maybe I'll just add is, if we're going to take it literally, which I suppose you could, then I think it's only fair that we take the rest of it literally, which is the Torah's constant refrain about the Canaanites being willing to sacrifice their children to their gods. Right. And sort of the report of the Kna'anim in the Torah is not a positive one. Mm. Okay, so whatever ideas they represent obviously are not just threats to monotheism, but they're threats to sort of, you know, what we might term moral living. Okay, does that... Society. Society. Yeah, yeah. We're we're gonna be living, you know, if it, we're gonna be living side by side with people who sacrifice their children, yeah, that's gonna is. influence. That's gonna influence uh, the you know the Jewish residents, um, and I think Absolutely. that the the this is showing the difference between our nation and the other nations is that the Torah was the first of any nation to actually announce that. We don't own our children. We don't sacrifice our children to the gods. The Akedah famously uh, is about that. So the significance of that, I think people today don't appreciate the historical context of what was happening in those days. You know, it's it's just brutality and people treated their, their wives and their children like cattle. Um, so I think that is very, uh, you, you pointed that out. It's a very important point to make. Yeah. Uh-huh. Rabbi Haddon, I wanted to just say, um, you know, it's say for Yeshua, it's kind of like the book that like people kind of like, you know, when you grow up and say for Yeshua, some people might find it boring a little bit. You know, there's more interesting ones like, you know, Shoftim is full of like, you know, like uh, war and, you know, well, not that this doesn't have war, but like a little more uh, brutality maybe played into the played into the wars. And you have like Shmuel is like the drama. And then you have like, you know, Melachim with the kings and and everything that goes on and the political, you know, monarchy and splitting of the kingdoms. I feel like Yushua kind of maybe gets a little bit in the back burner, which is why I think that your book is so incredible, because, you know, you have to start at the beginning. Right, <laughs> the beginning of Tanakh of Yeshua, and reading your book really made the entire book of Yeshua meaningful, interesting, um, engaging, um, and I highly, highly suggest. I don't. Do we show the? Yeah, you can show it. Uh, I highly, highly suggest uh, the book of Yeshua and Shoftim um, that uh, Rabbi Haddon brought out for Magid Publishing. It is an incredible read, and you speak so wonderfully as well, so elegantly. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. 
And what is, by the way, do you have an, do you have a project coming up soon? A project coming up soon. Yeah, I'm working on something. Yes. Okay, so God willing, we'll, we'll, get, to, we'll, we'll get to do another <laughs> podcast with you. Bezrat Hashem, I hope. Bezrat Hashem. All right. Thank you very, Thank very you. much. We Thank appreciate you so your much. time and your insights. Thank you both very much. And uh, just keep up your good work. Thank you. Thank we appreciate you. it. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for tuning into the Judaism Demystified podcast. We really appreciate all your support and your feedback. If you want to help us grow the podcast, keep spreading the word, share it with your friends, family, or whoever you think would be interested. We also opened a Patreon, so you can become a patron, contribute any small amount you'd like, which would really help us grow the show. Um, our Patreon is www.patreon.com Judaism. Pretty easy to remember. Thank you again, and we hope to keep putting out great shows for you guys. Thank you.